Well, good morning again. It's good to see you here on this Labor Day weekend. Okay, let's get situated here. I'm Taylor. I'm the pastor, a pastor here at Sojourn Galleria, and it's just, I just love, I, was, I love worshiping with my family, the people of God, and visitors and new people every week. Um, every Sunday, I, I was thinking of a couple images as we were singing those glorious songs to God with Chris and David leading us. Um, just, I feel most Sundays like a flower that's been closed up all night, and, and then as we start to worship, the sun comes up and I just feel like I'm just opening. Or like a sponge that's real dry and you get it down from underneath the kitchen sink and then you put water on it and it just, it just opens up. It just fills with life, and with, well, with water anyway. Hopefully not with life. That's, you want to put it in the, in the dishwasher if it fills with life. But we fill with life as we worship, so it's so good to just to have like a desert flower at night, just to have that sun come up and the rain perhaps fall on us, the rain of the Holy Spirit. So it's such a pleasure to be here with you. Um, so peace be with you. Um, last week, we wrapped up, if, if you haven't been here, for those of you that have, you know this, but if you haven't been here, just to clue you into where we are in the march of, you know, our sort of progress through, through the scriptures, we, I preached, and a couple others as I was gone a bit of the summer, through eight weeks through the book of Job. Um, it, was, it was a cheery uh, eight weeks. It's a really easy book. I'm being ironical. And so uh, today, I thought it might be good. So, so we have a series that's starting next week as well, but we had a kind of a free, a free week this week. And uh, so today, I thought it might be good to take a, take a breather, take some time off, and address something light. Um, so we're going to be looking at the topic of human trafficking. Um, so actually... No breather at all. It's the exact opposite. Sorry about that. And really, confession time, what I'm doing is uh, I'm actually... So up until this point, I haven't preached a bunch of sermons, but I've never preached somebody else's sermon. But starting now, I can never say that again. Um, I found out that this was sort of a free week, which I thought we were starting our next series this Sunday until about six days ago. And so I, I heard that it heights their preaching on human trafficking. And so we, you know, we had Elijah Rising van tour signups in the back, and we're going to plan on some Thursday night soon going and taking some of those tours. And the fi- our finance team just, um, just approved our partnering locally, our, our first local partnership with a human trafficking, organi- an organization that fights human trafficking. Don't, don't get worried. We're not going to partner with an organization that, that, that traffics to fight, to fight that evil. Um, whether it's Elijah Rising or someone else in the area. Um, and so we are very much, that's part of, more and more part of our conversation, doing justice, uh, fighting human trafficking and sex slavery and, and uh, you know, fighting poverty and hopefully getting involved in prison ministry here pretty soon. And just so, and so doing justice was, um, and, and talking in, about human trafficking in particular was, seemed like a perfect thing, although grave and difficult, just like Job. So sorry about that, but I hope it'll be good today. Um, so I'm mainly preaching somebody else's sermon. I tweaked it. I added some stuff. I took out some stuff, tried to make it my own, but it's, it was too good to pass up. So if you like it, give Drew Knowles, who's preaching over at Heights, credit uh, this Sunday. So, okay, where to start? Um, there's a seminal scripture in the Old Testament, uh, one of the minor prophets called Micah. Um, toward the end of that book, Micah 6.8, I believe it is, 
And it's this crystallization of truth and of God's call to his people. He's talking to Israel through the prophet Micah, and he says, God has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? And he just boils it down. He says three things. Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. And I heard uh, someone by the name of Gary Haugen, who's now the, he's a founder and the president of an organization that fights injustice around the world, strong Christian, um, called International Justice Mission. And he's going to feature toward the middle part of the sermon uh, more. But um, I heard him talk once on this verse, and he said, look, when God tells you, I just want three things from you. Your antenna should go up. Your ears should open up. And when he says the, the first one is to do justice, we should really go, okay, period, hang on. We should probably do that. That's probably really important to the heart of God. And Gary goes on to say what is known to anyone who's spent a lot of time in the scriptures, which is that doing justice is part of God's heart. He does, he's a God of justice. He hates injustice, and he wants us as his people to be a people who do justice, and a correlate to that is who fight injustice. And so I want to start off with just a definition of, okay, well, if we're to do justice as a people, that's very clear, and therefore we're to fight injustice um, as well as doing justice. What, what is injustice according to the Bible? Um, biblical injustice is an abuse of power which tarnishes the image of God in human beings by robbing them of their life, their dignity, or the fruits of their labor. The book of Ecclesiastes speaks of, quote, the tears of the oppressed. Uh, 4.1 says this, They have no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. So this is the biblical picture of injustice. It's, in short, it's the powerful oppressing the powerless, um, with no one to come to their aid, oftentimes. So today sort of here's the situation in the world. There are over 45 million people who live as slaves around the world. 45 million is more than were trafficked during the 400 years of the transatlantic slave trade. There are over 158 countries in the world with populations below that number, 45 million. Never before in the history of the world have there been this many, 45 million slaves. Um, and the market value of a slave today is about the same as a 64 ounce. I didn't realize they made those. Yeti. Maybe they don't. So maybe he meant 32 ounce. This is from Drew. But it's nothing. You know, people are sold for less than a, a fancy cup that we could buy here at Bucky's. Um, one in four of those slaves are children. A devastating statistic, but true. A child goes missing in India every eight minutes. In the United States, 77% of trafficking victims are people of color. In China, babies are kidnapped and put up for international adoption. In Sri Lanka, trafficked children are made to serve as soldiers. Across the world, four billion people live outside the protection of a system of laws. And that's something we take for granted, living in a law-abiding um, society. There are as many as 11.6 million human beings held in forced commercial sexual exploitation. The average sex slave is given a quota of, these are some tough stats, but we need to be able to stop ignoring that's what I've done for a long time, and start digging into what's happening so that we can address it, okay? The average sex slave is given a quota of 10 to 15 buyers each night, with some being sold to as many as 45 buyers each night. I can't even, I don't know how that's possible. 
but it happens. In all, the human trafficking industry generates about $150 billion each year. So it's a huge industry, and most of that comes from sexual exploitation. So Houston, where God has called us to live, to plant his church, to be his church, uh, it's, it's both a domestic and an international hub for trafficking humans. Uh, the I-10 corridor is the number one route, I did not realize this, for human trafficking in the U.S. Uh, one in every five victims in the U.S. of human trafficking is trafficked down I-10 between Houston and San Antonio. So one in five that's trafficked in the U.S. comes down I-10 between Houston and San Antonio. Up to 80 or 90% of sex trafficking victims were at one time foster children. But they were never adopted. On average, and I'm going to swing back to all this, don't worry, I'm not just piling it on. On average, it takes 48 hours for traffickers to make contact with a newly homeless child in our city. This is just, it's egregious, it's sickening, it's real, it's evil. Um, And it's what our sin does to the human heart. It's what our sin has done to our world. Um, we live in an age of what's right for you is right for you. What's right for me is right for me. Just let, let's, you know, let's live in peace, which means just don't bother me. I won't bother you. There's no objective good and evil. Um, we should never impro- impose what we believe on someone else. Um, I believe in a God of love, not a God of wrath. These are sound bites that we hear today that are part of the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. And this philosophy can seem reasonable as long as you're rich and comfortable and free and you live in a law-abiding society. Um, it's easier to ignore human trafficking than to allow it to dismantle our cherished worldview um, if we hold to something like that. Or if those that are around us hold to something like that, right? Um, So we're tempted not to put it up in their face and not to talk about why there's a mandate to do justice. Um, And we're tempted not to do it ourselves. We're tempted just to kind of let bygones be bygones. It's not really affecting me as it were, right? Um, But the slaves of this world, this is Drew's line, don't have time for that postmodern nonsense, okay? In their world... It's a luxury, in other words. Praying to a God of love is praying to a God of wrath. And I think what he means by that is praying to a God of love who is committed to justice, who's going to do something, who's going to make things right, um, and whose people take that seriously, whose people fight for, against injustice and fight for justice and get involved. Um, sometimes, Drew says, wrath is precisely the kind of love that we need. So not just... Loving a God who just loves, but part of his love is he hates injustice. You know, so if I saw one of my children being abused, my love for my, my child would not respond in nothing, doing nothing. That's either hatred of my child or apathy, which could be worse. But love responds when it sees the, the beloved being injured, be take, being taken advantage of. And God loves his creation. And so he is a God of wrath who will make things Right, and we are called into his character uh, to, be, to be like him in this way. So, so our calling, what are we supposed to do with this information? Like I said, I don't want to just pile it on, but I wanted to present the problem, right? Um, so many of us have heard stats like this or the sketchings of them. Few of us have done much about it. Some of us have. Some of us are. I, I'm preaching less than sharing, and I feel like that every week, but certainly this week, um, so Luke 4 is a great place to start. The, the text that Jeremiah read for us this morning, uh, it's a text where Jesus, if you weren't sure about the he that was being talked about, it's Jesus. He's the one who opens the scroll of Isaiah. He's the one who reads that prophecy that was at that point seven centuries old. So it'd be like me reading a prophecy from the 14th century, from the 1300s. Um, 
And, and he says, he, sit, he closes it, and I love Jesus' composure. He closes it, and you know, if that were me, again, I, I say if that were me sometimes when I'm acting like if I were Jesus, and that's always just frightening. But if, I, you know, if that were me, egocentric me, I would have closed it and then been like, yo, I'm here. But no, Jesus doesn't do that. He closes the scroll, hands it back to the attendant, sits down. And then people start talking. And then he says, that's fulfilled today in your hearing. Finally, after seven centuries, the text to whom that points is here. It's me. I'm the reason. I'm the reason for God's revelation. I am the fullness of God's revelation. I've come to do justice, to set the prisoner free. And I'm going to make for myself a people through my cross, through my death, through my suffering, through my resurrection and my ascension to power. I'm going to make for myself a people who are passionate about fighting injustice and doing justice and seeing prisoners set free. That's what the gospel is. That's what the gospel is. So in John chapter 20, Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, even so. Okay? As the Father has sent me. See that syllogism? Even so. In the same way, I send you. Father sends me, just so I send you. So Jesus' mission, in every sense except for the fact that he died singularly in a way that we never can, but then calls us to die in him and to live in him, right? That's, that's where all of our life and activity comes from. We are, to, we are to live in the life and the death of Christ and to do what he did and to be passionate about what he was passionate about. First Peter 2, Christ suffered for you, leaving what? An example. So that you should follow in his steps. We are the body of Christ. So all that Jesus did in his body on the earth, everything he said and did, he now does it through us. That's how the book of Acts starts out. How does the book of Acts start? Okay, the first verse of the book of Acts, which is about the church. So Jesus has ascended to heaven. The gospels, so everything in the New Testament previous to the book of Acts is the gospels. The Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The four different pictures of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection on earth. The next book is the book of Acts. So it's about Jesus, and then the next book is about Jesus' body, the church. And the first, book, the first verse of Acts says, it's the, the, the author Luke, who wrote one of the gospels, he says, Hey, I was writing to you previously in, in my gospel about Jesus' life, about everything that Jesus began to do and to teach. And then he continues on with a story about the church. What's the implication there? This book is about what Jesus is continuing to do through his body, the church, that's about to be given in full force his Holy Spirit as they look to him as their Savior and Lord. Because he's now in heaven. And he's reigning through us, his body. And that's how his kingdom goes forth. Amazing. Okay. Drew titled this section, Cause for Hope. And it's, we're, we're, we're lifting off here. So don't worry. I know we've been down. But we had to, we had to get down to go up. Um, human trafficking is proof that the world is broken. Okay. The human heart is broken. It's not just out there. It's in here. Out there happens because of in here. That's one of the basic storylines of the scriptures. Everything cracked in God's perfect universe because I chose to go my own way, my forefather Adam. And in him, when I'm born, I'm represented in Adam, that brokenness. So the brokenness out there comes from my decision to go my own way and to act like God's not king and I am. Okay? Um, if anyone can stare down that kind of darkness that's outside and that's inside, this resident evil, it's us. We as Christians who have looked to Christ 
to save us and to make us right before the Father and to give us an eternal hope that will never fail. Uh, We believe that Jesus' resurrection, he didn't just take care of our sins, he rose to a new sort of life that as we trust in him, we don't just die to sin, which we do, we are alive now as he is alive in a whole new way, in a way that is impervious to death now, in a way that actually he conquered death and he paid the price for sin so that we're no longer prisoners to the sins that used to bind us. Will we continue to sin until we go to glory, until we're made perfect? Absolutely. Do we have to? Is that power over us in the same way that it was when we were dead in our sins and transgressions? No. Christ has started a new creation. It started with him. And as we look to him, it takes place inside of us. And it's to radiate out. And it's to make a real difference in our community, which is why Jeremiah, one of the reasons that Jeremiah was saying that we as a church, our philosophy of ministry, it's, it's low-key, it's relational, it's intentional, it's incarnational. It is focused on a physical space, in our case, the Galleria. This is where God has called us. We want to see not just souls saved for heaven, but we know that Christ is coming again to make a new heavens and new earth. And so we see the new creation going out into this culture that he's planted us in, in our jobs, in the schools that we're in, if we're students, if we're teachers, um, in our families, in our neighborhoods, on our streets, the places we go to eat. Um, And that should make a real physical difference. So throughout history, God's repeatedly used his church to bring liberty to those in bondage, both spiritual and physical. So we're not, I'm not the first pastor that's preached this kind of sermon. Thank God. The, history, the church has a history of doing justice and rolling back injustice. So Professor Thomas Kidd at Baylor writes a few things. I'm going to read a few to you. He writes that starting in the, uh, 300 AD or so, in the, in, the, in the fourth century, I should say, quote, we find Christians for the first time in positions of sovereign control and social leadership, empowered rather than persecuted. So, in other words, it took about 300 years, 250, 300 years, but after three centuries of Christians suffering and being persecuted, they began to be in social positions of prominence. What would they do with that power, Kidd asks. That's his question. He says, we should not exaggerate the extent of their advocacy of human rights. Like a good scholar, he's not going to exaggerate his finding. But certain Christian writers did break away from the long-standing social practices related to slavery. Slavery in the ancient Near Eastern world and in the world at that time was totally normal. Um, From long-standing social practices related to slavery, prostitution, and neglect of the poor. Based on Christian convictions, they sometimes made first-in-world history arguments against these practices. And they didn't need to wait for Thomas Jefferson or Immanuel Kant to enlighten them. In other words, this happened over a millennium before the Enlightenment came about. This makes especially conspicuous a sermon, here he goes mentioning a sermon, of the 4th century church father Gregory of Nyssa, in which Gregory began to criticize slavery as an institution. Not just, just, hey, guys, you shouldn't have slaves as Christians. Everyone is made um, in God's image. You have no right to own a human like they're a cow. Okay. Um, But as an institution, as a social institution, he began to criticize it. As classic scholar Kyle Harper notes, this is a breathtaking departure since we have no other such extant criticisms of slavery from the entire ancient world. Okay. Although Gregory's criticism seemed to have attracted little notice at the time, it was, quote, no small distinction to be the earliest human to have left an argument for the basic injustice of slavery. Kid goes on, Christian leaders made even more progress in their critique of prostitution 
and treatment of the poor. With regard to prostitution, Christian rulers helped to make many kinds of coerced sex illegal by the end of the 5th century, something that would have been unthinkable without Christian concepts of human dignity. Um, So that is how the early church, not always, but began, continued and began more and more until the church began to really be corrupted um, and the Roman Empire broke up and other things happened. Feudalism set in. Um, um, It's how it used its power, its influence, and its wealth. Okay, what about us? What about the church today? Christ's church, the universal church, the invisible church, the lower C Catholic church. We who are part of that church, very much. Our, our forefathers are not dead. They're alive in Christ. They're watching us, Hebrews 11 says, um, cheering us on. How are, how are we doing? Um, so I feel like before time immemorial, long, long ago, I, I did a fellowship my first year out of, out of uh, college. It was in D.C., and um, part of the fellowship was I was working on Capitol Hill for a senator. I was interested in law, and part of the fellowship was that every we had a mentor, but then also we had someone that was a Christian that was in the workplace, not, you know, not a man of the cloth, not, not a preacher like me, but um, a Christian in the workplace doing justice and mercy, living as a Christian fully in their arena. How do you do that kind of is a, is a big question for a Christian, right? How do you do that? So this, one of them that came one Friday, I'll never forget, I think it was fall of 2000, okay, I'm going to give my age away, fall of 2001, his name was Gary Haugen, I mentioned him at the beginning of of the talk here, Um, and he, as I said, started the International Justice Mission. Um, He, a short bio on him, you don't need to know much, but as, as I said, I think I said this earlier, actually, you didn't hear, from California, went to Harvard undergrad. Chicago Law School, clerked for a Supreme Court justice, I believe. After that, or maybe in between Harvard and Chicago, did spend some time in South Africa at the end of apartheid, was really affected by the different treatment between blacks and whites, came back. Um, and then after law school, he was appointed as a young man um, in 1994-95 to head up the UN investigations uh, of the Rwandan genocide. Uh, where over 800,000 Rwandans killed each other because of a civil war. Machetes to the head, horrible stuff, rape, uh, children killed. He saw that carnage firsthand, going over there as legal counsel to decide. As a country under Bill Clinton, under his administration, and as part of the UN, what do we do? And um, I'll never forget when he sat down he sat down and he just opened up the feeding of the 5,000 to us briefly in the Gospels where Jesus takes, you know, is it two loaves of bread and five fish or two fish and five loaves of bread? I can never remember. I think it's the, other, the latter. And he, there are tons of, you know, teeming masses of people that need food and he multiplies them and feeds. And the disciples are the ones who hand it out, right? And, and Gary says, in a really awkward moment. He's sitting at the head of the table and there are 12 of us around the table. It's Friday, 9.30 in the morning. And he says, why did Jesus, you know, so he starts to, he prays to the Father, thank you Lord for giving us this bounty. And then he just starts multiplying and he starts handing it out to his disciples. And Gary says, you know, as the bread and the fish are piling up in mounds around the disciples, they're going, oh, thank you, Jesus. Wow, this is amazing. Thank you. All this bread, all this fish. Thank you so much. Wow, this is fantastic. We are going to have a feast here. Thank you. Thank you. And Gary just kept saying, thank you, as the fish and 
the ri- and the loaves are rising. Thank you, thank you, Jesus. And it just he said that for like thirty seconds, and I was like, this guy's crazy. Um, and he and then he stopped in this really pregnant pause, and he said, why did Jesus multiply all that bread and all that fish? What was the point? Was it for the disciples? Was it all for the disciples? Had, were they given the bounty by God Himself, by His hand? For them, just for them, just to keep. And he said, of course not. That's ridiculous. They were given it to give it away and to feed people. And he said, man, we in America, we basically live like a disciple who just thinks it's all for us. It's not all for us. We're made rich in so many ways, given so much provision so that we can be conduits of God's blessing and justice and mercy to the world. Um, So Gary... Having returned home, okay, Gary Hagen, International Justice Mission. Having returned home from Rwanda, he goes back to work at a legal firm. And he's on a subway every day at 7 or 8 a.m. And he's got his paper and he's looking at other people and they've got their Wall Street journals and New York Times. And he just, this is, this is an article from the New Yorker that I read recently. But he's thinking on this train about how I can't get what I just saw out of my head, and I can't just go back to reading the paper and working at a law firm. I can't do it. It says this. Six weeks later, after returning home, Haugen felt disoriented. In church, his mind drifted into calculations of how long it would take a machete-wielding gang to wipe out the congregation. Although the Salvation Army, World Vision, and other Christian organizations fed the hungry and sheltered the homeless, no Christian organization that he knew of had heeded the Bible's appeals for justice. Break the arm of the wicked, this is from scripture, an evil man. Call him to account for his wickedness that would not be found out. So he resolved that Christians serving God had to do more than pray for the victims of cruelty. They had to use the law to help rescue them. He says, this is not a God who offers sympathy, best wishes. This is a God who wants evildoers brought to account and vulnerable people protected here and now. There's another story that Haugen tells in another setting of a hike that he took. I'm going to do took in air quotes, okay? He, it's a hike that he took with his brothers. This is back when he was in California growing up. He was 11 or 12 years old with his brothers and his father. They went on an all-day hike somewhere in the mountains, perhaps in Northern California. I can't remember. And he was a really punctilious, scrupulous, careful, circumspect, perhaps overly so, little boy, and he saw some signs that said something to the effect of, you know, warning, it could be dangerous up there, and there was this, they went through the visitor center to start on the trail, and, and he just got caught in the visitor center, basically, because it was warm and nice, and they had cups of cocoa in there, and the TVs were showing all the beautiful scenery, and there were some nice comfy couches, and so he just decided to stay in the visitor center. I go on ahead, and he finally talked his dad into letting him go, and his dad was just saying, okay, I'm not going to force you to go, son, but I really think you're going to regret this. Well, his, his two brothers, I believe it was, and his father went off on the hike, and he said, after a couple hours, I was just bored stiff. And I'll never forget, he says, when they came back at the end of that day, late afternoon, he said, they returned, he said, there I was, safe and bored. Safe and bored. They returned late afternoon, rosy-cheeked and flush with life. They had taken risks and made memories. And to this day, he says, I still regret not going on that hike. I still regret playing it safe. You know, the, the cul-de-sac, it's, I mean, it's a French term, but it's a street sort of 
designation that we're all familiar with. It's, it's a street that's a dead end, right? But it has, so there's not, it's not a through street, but it has, yeah, it has a circle that you can drive around at the end of the street and then come back. And it was designed, apparently, for safety reasons, to be a really safe, I mean, I grew up on a cul-de-sac, 104 Fawn Lake, you want to go check it out? 104 Fawn Lake, don't live there anymore. I'm sure the neighbors will appreciate <laughs> you driving by. Grew up on a cul-de-sac, uh, great place to grow up. It, it always felt very safe to me. We had a basketball goal and a field to throw frisbee. But Gary says um, that actually it was designed for safety, but it actually is one of the, if not the most dangerous sort of residential streets in existence. Um, it's resulted in more, more, pe- more kids basically are killed every year in cul-de-sacs than in any other type of residential street. And that's probably because people back up constantly out of their driveways um, in mass kind of in cul-de-sacs because you have multiple houses built around, built around them. And, you know, there's that sense of safety. There's that sense of safety in that circle. I remember making a bonfire in the middle of the street on some Friday night. After, after I had exams in eighth grade, I think we made a bonfire in the middle of a cul-de-sac. It just felt so safe. <laughs> Little did we know, the cops showed up, you know, and they were like, you're in the middle of the city. What are you doing? Uh, fortunately, we, we got away with it. Um, but uh, the point is, cul-de-sacs, far from being safe, even because they feel safe, they're actually really, really dangerous, and a lot of kids die every year in them. And so he just goes on to hook that into his story about the visitor center and to say, look, we pursue lives, in pursuing lives of safety and security, we get neither. We endanger ourselves, not only in this life, but in the life to come. We endanger ourselves before God who has given himself completely for us and calls us to lose ourselves in the fight for justice and um, to preach it to ourselves, to preach it to others, to do it. So Gary says this, um, in the New Yorker, he's talking about, um, well, rescuing workers in Nairobi. He says, prayers help. And I want to be a praying people, as Jeremiah said. We very much want to be a praying people, but not just. We want prayer to move us to action. We want prayer to inflame our hearts for what inflames God's heart and then to go into act. Okay? Prayers help. Prayers and a lawyer help more. I think it was Oliver Cromwell who said... Uh, Trust God and keep your powder dry. Similar. I want to be people of prayer. One of my prayers for myself and my son, Lord, make me a man of prayer and of action. I want to be, I want to be a people of prayer and action. Not a people who hear a bunch of information as the media trains us to do and then sit and do nothing. Not that kind of people. Can we please be a church who believes in a God of justice, who believes that we deserved what Christ got, We deserve justice. We got mercy. And who would have the justice and mercy of God, the gospel on our lips, in our hands and feet, who would be a church who would do justice and see women and men set free. So my vision is to be a church who uh, give away, we tithe, and we, as a finance team, just just kind of finished talking about some partnerships and the things we want to give to and how do we want to use our tithe this year. But to tithe this year, but then to ratchet that up every year. To keep our staff and our facilities costs as low as possible so that we can be the church, so that we, I, part of my job description is to equip you for the work of the ministry because you are the saints, you are the church. I'm not the church, I'm just one of you. And, and then to, uh, to do justice and mercy, to give away more and more of what comes in. So eventually I'd love to be a, 
what we pull in financially, giving half of that away. I'd love to, we're here at 10. I'd love next year to be at 20. You know, we're going to have to, we're going to have to be a giving people, both of money and of time. We're going to have to grow. Um, we're going to have to take risks and not play it safe. But to be a people who give more next year, 20 maybe, 30 the next year. And then by year five, man, I would love to have it in our vision to be giving away half of what comes out, to be risk takers, to be plowing into the kingdom in that way and not just building bigger barns. Um, we had a, a sign-up sheet of Elijah Rising, which is an organization that fights human trafficking um, in our area. We had a sign-up sheet for their van tour, which kind of is the first step in getting involved with them. Uh, back there, we had a lot of sign-ups. If, it's not back there this week, but if you would like to put your name on that list and you want to take a van tour, it's going to be a Thursday night at 7 that works for us. It'll be sometime in the next month, probably. If that interests you at all, uh, fill out a connect card, and on the back of the connect card, along with any prayer requests you have, just make note of that, and I'll put you on that list. And I know there's some here even today that want to be doing that but didn't put their name down. Um, okay, next steps. Next steps. Okay, let's get practical in the last few minutes we have together. Okay, so in addition to filling out the card, there's, here's, here are things we can do in the meantime. We can pray. Okay, most of you have heard me say, one of my favorite lines about prayer, which is that when man works, man works. But when man prays, God works. I feel like prayer is sort of like being in an engine room and just, you know, of a, of a steamship, let's say, and throwing, throwing coal into that fire. And as you throw coal into that fire, the engine is just blazing and the wheel is turning. And that wheel is God. And so prayer is the work. But also we want to be a people who pray, who watch God move, and then who follow him, right? And this is, one, this is one area there's no question about. Doing justice, fighting injustice, fighting human trafficking. I mean, there's a, there's a partner in our area. It's a clear call to do justice. There's no equivocation about it in the scriptures, so it's a, it's a gimme. It's a gimme. And as we get into it, we will be more burdened for it we, as we're more exposed to it, and we will want to raise awareness, which is kind of the second thing that we can do. We can talk about it with our neighbors, um, we can have it as part of our conversation. I would love to, there's a film called Insidious, which won some awards for its excellence, but it's really graphic and grainy and, and, and it's going to burden us, but I haven't watched it yet. A friend gave it to me. I would love to watch it as a church to have a night. We'll um, hopefully peg a night to watch that together just to raise awareness and invite anyone who may to come and join us. Uh, we can stop looking at pornography, number three. Okay, porn perpetuates the sex industry. Research shows that many of the women in pornographic films are slaves. Pornography is also a gateway for Johns, who are the men involved, not pimps, but um, similar. Pornography increases sexual demand and fuels prostitution. It also two-dimensionalizes women, it, it, um, and, it's, and it's really a sort of platform to violent crime against women. Um, that's how Charles Manson started. Do you know that? That's how a lot of serial killers started, is with softcore porn. Um, it's a hateful thing, but it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's so easy. All I have to do is click my phone, and there it is, okay? As men, we have to stop. We have to stop. We have to be men of purity. We have to hold each other accountable, have real conversations. We have to have a, you know, we're having forums about this and that and the other at Heights. We need a, just a porn forum. Yeah. I mean, brave, brave be the soul who comes to that, but we need to be, we know it's a problem. We need to stop. Okay, um, I was recently tempted to get on my phone and just look at images 
And whenever I'm tempted, I try to text some friends, accountability friends, and I, I texted my mentor up in the woodlands, a, a pastor, and I just said, hey, man, I'm tempted. Pre- please pray for me. I'm tempted to look at whatever. And he, he said, hey, I'm praying for you. It's a struggle. You've got to fight. And then he texted this last line in his text. He said, we are protectors, not predators. And that stuck with me. And that's right. So don't, you're putting fuel on the fire of exactly what we want to fight, what we're called to fight against when you do that. So don't hide it if, you, if that's a struggle. And if you're a guy in here, you probably, the chances are you're probably struggling with that to some degree. We need to be talking about it, open about it, praying about it together, fighting it together, okay? Mums, the word is not a strategy. Not a strategy, okay? We are sinners, guys and girls. We are sinners. We need to be open about that, knowing that Christ calls us to holiness, but we are sinners whom a, savior, a sinless Savior died for. We've been freed from that, okay? Um, we can give of our um, time through partnerships. We can give of our money. Again, partnerships and other, other uh, yeah. So we're going to hopefully partner with Elijah Rising. Um, we're going to be as a Sojourn Houston collective with the other churches, part of a, a board of churches in Houston that, that get together and brainstorm and fight against um, human trafficking. We're going to take a van tour. Um, we might get involved with Love 146, so not Elijah Rising, but another human trafficking organization that, uh, that fights uh, that fights specifically against children being trafficked. Um, there's no reason that we just have to do Elijah Rising, but we will be involved. We will give money. We will give time. We will have a partnership. Uh, we're not going to just create it in-house because other people are doing it fantastic. Um, we can serve the homeless. Sixthly, the homeless, especially homeless children, are the most vulnerable people in our city, so we could partner possibly with Star of Hope, uh, and that's in the future. We can support local schools. Hey, um, high school dropouts are more likely to be victimized by human trafficking and they're more likely to victimize others so investing time in school age children mentoring at risk teens at Lee High School for instance um, spending time with developing, par- developing partnerships here with families and students um, is fighting human trafficking albeit a step removed um, so we can, eighthly we can foster and adopt children we can be a culture we can look to being a culture where in five years, in ten years, it's normal for us to have foster kids, adopt, adopted children. It's not just one couple or a couple people, a couple couples. It's normalized. Um, if it's true that up to 90% of domestic trafficking victims were previously foster children, then, then fostering children or adopting children is a, is a direct threat to human trafficking. Um, we can, this is basically the last point, okay? We can proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to others, and we can proclaim it to ourselves. Um, G.K. Chesterton, uh, one of my favorite authors of old, he said this. He said, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel, uh, a whorehouse, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel looking for a prostitute is looking for God. What in the heck is he talking about? It's a need. It's a hunger. We were made for more. We thirst, we hunger, we desire, and we fill ourselves with things that we think are going to satisfy us, and they do not. They turn to ash in our mouth. Christ didn't come for us to obey a set of rules. Christ came to reunite us into the love relationship that we were created for with God. It's the only thing that satisfies. So in every false pursuit, you're looking for God. You're looking for God. You're looking for God. No person, no thing is going to satisfy that. 
the deep yes goes beneath the deeper no, the deep no. There's a, everything is yes and amen in Christ. Every promise, that's what Paul says. We were made for yes. There's, I think the best sermon title ever that I've encountered was preached by 19, a 19th century Scottish preacher by the name of Thomas Chalmers. His, anyway, yeah, I'm not even gonna say that. Thomas Chalmers, the title of the sermon is this, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And he's talking about Christ. What Christ does when, his, when we believe on him that he died for us and that he rose for us and that he lived a life that we should live but can't. And he brings us into relationship with the living God as we say yes to him and gives us his Holy Spirit, gives us new hearts. That power, that new, it gives us a new affection. It doesn't, it doesn't just clean our slates. It gives us a new love, the love that Christ has for his Father. We are given at the new birth. And we are to cultivate that to cultivate that as Christians and to cultivate that together in this horizontal relationship that we have with one another. To feed on that and to say yes to God and to drive into fellowship with him. And it expels, excuse me, it expels lesser loves. Christianity is not a religion. It's not about no, 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 don't do this, don't do this. It's about yes. I mean, God created the orgasm. God made that. Satan didn't make that. It didn't come about from a prebiotic slime struck by lightning. God made it. He is a God of passion. And he designed sex and marriage to be just a faint picture of what he wants with us. That is amazing. And you don't have to do anything more than look at a sunset to realize that. He is a God of indescribable beauty and glory. And he calls us into that. And he calls us to see that we are the ones he was talking about in that text in Luke 4. We are the oppressed. We are the poor. We are the blind. We are the naked. Don't make the mistake of the Laodicean church in Revelation 3 who thought that because they were wealthy, rich, materially, they had it together and they were rich in the ways that they needed to be. Jesus says, no, you are blind and naked and pitiable and poor. Come and buy from me. I have everything you need. He is our riches. And once we see the deliverance is for us first and we go to him and we're honest about that with each other and we're working that out, together, in community, in our parish life together, in our neighborhoods, and we're honest and we speak the truth in love and we stop glossing over things and putting on fake smiley face, then we can really start doing justice and preaching deliverance and, and, and making a difference. Because it's not just, hey, I'm doing this for you, you really, it's, there's no condescension. It's, I've been saved, I've been rescued through no good of my own. Can I invite you into that? Oh my God, such a difference. You know, we're going to end with that. Let me pray. Father, I just thank you so much for uh, saying what you want to say every Sunday through song, through prayers, through quiet time, through, uh, you start, through the word preached and um, through this fellowship of believers and, and those who have come that haven't said yes to you yet but that are here. And I pray that are listening, and I thank you that they're here. And we just we thank you for caring so much about justice and for um, coming to set the prisoners free. We thank you that we were those prisoners, and if we've trusted in you, we are no longer. Even if we feel that way, we are no longer. I pray that you'd make us a people with your heart, people of prayer and of action who do justice, who love mercy, and who walk humbly with you. We pray it in Jesus' name, by the power of your Spirit. Amen. <laughs>